This is Halfway There, episode number 286. Michelle Lazurik and Learning to Let Go. Don't worry, he's got you, friends. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, as always, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I am glad that you've joined. Hey, if you enjoy the show, I think you will. Uh, go ahead and share it with a friend. Post on social media. Tag me. I would love that. Uh, or shoot a text or go to uh, Overcast, which is the app that I use for listening to podcasts. You can grab a single little clip. So if there's a story you love. You can grab that and just uh, text that out or share it on social with a friend. Super cool feature. I think that's great. Guys, our guest today, she is a, I love this, a multi-genre award-winning author. She's also a literary agent with WordWise Media and a certified writing coach. And she's, she's uh, so she's an author herself. She's written a, a new book, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about because I love the title, um, which is I Surrender All. Sort of, <laughs> which is great. Our guest is Michelle Lazurek. Michelle, welcome to Halfway There. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I am glad you're here. And I love that title. Uh, you know, I surrender all, sort of, like how many of us have not been there, right? We're, we're all there at some point. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's something near and dear to my heart and a topic that uh, God certainly taught me in spades before I was ever able to write about it. So yeah. Um, yeah, I have learned a lot of life and God lessons through it. I know that's that's a book that I needed during all like 75 verses in my fundamentalist church growing up, right? So I surrender <laughs> all. Anyway, that's so that's interesting. Well, I want to hear about you, but so obviously you're 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 in the writing world, but uh that's only just a small slice of who you are. So tell me a little more about who you are and where God has you right now. Okay, so um I grew up Catholic. And grew up in a um, fairly strict home, um, a little bit of control and um, those kind of things there. And um, my faith journey didn't begin uh, with the Lord. I mean, I always knew of the Lord, went to Catholic school my whole life, um, uh, went to church. I went to church. Actually, my parents actually did not attend church very often. They went to Christmas and Easter, if that. And so I had a grandmother, my mother's mother, who lived mm. next door to us. And even as a little kid, she was very devout and she would go to, to church every Sunday. And I spent a ton of time over her home. And so I would spend weekends there and oftentimes we would go to church together. And I loved, I loved church. I loved being there. I loved, even if I didn't understand everything that was being said in the homily or, you know, started to have questions about things, I loved just the process of being there. So I was never opposed to God ever. Um, I've had moments where, you know, I've had those distant moments or those doubtful moments, but I've never, there's been no, no absence of God ever from my life. So um, I'm very grateful to that. And to be honest, I don't know where I would be today without my, my grandmother's influence. So just her taking me every week meant a ton to me. And um, so all throughout uh, my Catholic faith, uh, Catholic school, uh, you know, obediently followed that um, and then started to have some questions right around uh, my junior year of high school. Okay. And well, hold on. Before you go into that, I want to hear, I, I just want to explore this a little bit because I think it's so powerful and sometimes uh, gets overlooked because it's not 
a flashy ministry, right? But your grandmother took you to church, right? She she cared enough about you to make sure that you were going to the, you know, or just going to the place where, well, God is obviously everywhere, but indoctrinating you into that, um, which I think is sometimes overlooked in its in its value. I hear these stories all the time. A neighbor uh, picked us up and took us to church because our parents didn't go or whatever, right? It's such a valuable thing, friends. Like if you can, you notice somebody and you want to want to take them, even if the parents think, hey, it's free babysitting for four, <laughs> four hours or whatever, it's okay. Like it has a real meaningful impact. Sure. And, and obviously God can transform and transcend through any motivation for going. You totally, know what I mean? Like, totally. You hear so many stories of people who went just for the snacks you yeah. know what I mean? and walked out yeah. with a transformative relationship or, with the Savior. So, you know. The, yeah. The guys go to youth group for the girls, right? Like I get yeah, it, but, but to, totally understand. But that's, but I think that is really a, a powerful point. So I, I just love that you, you shared that and that's really good. So you were going through, through Catholic school and then you, so you started to have some doubts in kind of in high school. Yeah. Um, right around my junior year, I started having questions. Um, our church had candles that you could uh, light and pray for um, you know, someone who's sick or uh, just anything you wanted, but you had to pay a quarter. And I think it was one of my first questions I ever asked my Nana. I said, Nana, why do we have to pay a quarter to pray for my sick grandfather? Like, I, I never understood the point of why you had to pay to light. I, I forget what answer she gave me, but uh, it was enough to appease me at the time, but I always kind of just like raised my one eyebrow up at that one. It's like, okay. And then, you know, as we were going through, I'd gone through confirmation my sophomore year. So I'd already been through that sacrament and then started questioning, well, you know, how come we have to confess our sins to a priest who is supposed to be human and probably has just as much sin as we do. And then people stopped having answers to those types of questions. <laughs> and then I think the moment for me where I really started to seek the Lord was actually in one of my religion classes, we had a combination of both lay teachers and nuns. And um, one nun that was uh, in that class, her name was Sister Janice, and she explained it was right around Easter time. And she was explaining the importance of Lent. And I had always learned it was one of the few um, activities or just rituals that we participated in as a family, which is kind of weird because we didn't really go to church that often as a family, but we practice Lent. And one of the things we did is I was told is that we, we abstained from meat on Fridays, which we did religiously. And, um, I was always asked to give up something for Lent. And so I did, you know, chocolate, uh, you know, I didn't do anything that was like really sacrificial, you know, like I never gave up TV or anything, you know, like that was like the sacred cow and now, yeah. you know, but like I gave up things like, you know, um, I don't know, listen to music or, uh, something. And, um, you know, I'm patting myself on the back, you know, figuratively thinking this, you know, I'm a good Catholic girl and I'm in my religion class and sister Janice explains the importance of Lent. And I'd always heard that we, that Lent, as we give something up is to teach us about the sacrifice that Christ had given to us on the cross. And so we are sacrificing something just as he sacrificed something. And so that was all good for me until sister Janice turned that script around and informed us that that had nothing to do with why we were celebrating Lent, it was because way back when there was a disease that had destroyed all the cattle. And in order to keep the cattle clean um, and uh, like e either use them for food or slaughter, that they abstained from meat for 40 days. Oh, and wow. I was just, Lord, I, I walked out of that class thinking, oh my word, like what else do I not know about my own faith? And so I started asking questions of people. I didn't necessarily go to 
I didn't necessarily go to my grandmother, but I went to, um, there was a uh, um, priest that was there just kind of like as a guided, like a chaplain, like a guidance counselor at our school. So I went and talked to him. I talked to a couple of my teachers that I really trusted. And, um, you know, they gave me the the pat Catholic answer, um, but there was still something in my soul that was just kind of, kind of tricked a little bit there thinking mm, something isn't adding up here. And um, so the Lord started to seek me at that point. Obviously he knew I was kind of knocking a little on the door of, of him. And so um, he started to put people in my life that, that knew the Lord differently than I did. One of which was uh, a mutual friend of my husband, now husband's uh, and our and mine, um, who I would attribute to my conversion story. Um, uh, a guy that grew up Catholic himself, uh, his parents never went. And he had fairly recently, he had accepted the Lord and kind of fell away. And then now he was back on fire. And so he was kind of evangelizing to me about the Lord. And he, the thing I couldn't deny was that I had been in Catholic school my entire life and I never once touched the Bible. We were told you couldn't, like the priest was the one who was responsible for kind of translating and interpreting the Bible for us. He could write off Bible verses like nobody's business. And I remember one heated argument we'd gotten into uh, where we were debating. And I, you know, I, I have to prove that I'm boss, you know, because I've been in Catholic school. <laughs> my and what does he know? You know, he's this pagan heathen person and he doesn't know more than I do and deep down as I would debate and I would kind of like be stubborn and hold my ground deep down I was in my heart thinking wow like there's just a lot about my faith and about God that I have no idea about and I would like to know a little more yeah it sounds like you kind of had that sense already that that, hey there's probably more going on here than I know even from that that kind of Lent story that's really fascinating by the way as we're coming up on Lent um that that's kind of a kind of a thing that you know sometimes we have these traditions that don't they have different origin stories than we would would like to believe right and so we ascribe all these meanings to them that may or may not be there i mean they're there because we think they are but they're not they may or may not be as valuable as we think i i could never get into I'm not a lent i'm not an advent guy like that just doesn't like neither one of those really resonate with me but I'm weird. I'm a weirdo in the spiritual formation community because they all love it, right? Like they just love, they think that's fantastic. But anyway, so okay, that's that's really interesting. Um, so you were so you so you, in this conversation, you're realizing this guy knows the Bible way more than I do. What'd that do for you? How'd that how'd that kind of would that trigger you? I love how you put it that it kind of triggered something in your soul. Yeah, absolutely. And it continued to trigger that. And then the Lord is, as usual, continue to put people in my life that knew Uh, that mutual friend then introduced me to who was now my now husband. And uh, he actually was engaged to someone before me and they were running a youth group and they were running it at a Methodist church that was about two towns over from where I lived. And did I want to go? And so, um, you know, asked my parents and I think my mom said no. And I think my dad said, oh, just let her. And so I went and uh, had a great time and was dating. <laughs> funny story. But I was actually dating my now husband's fiance's brother. So that's how <laughs> I actually got to know Joe and his family um, through that. So, uh, you know, his, uh, her brother and, and I would, would attend youth group and even he, his name was Donnie, his, he knew the scriptures better than I did. He could tell me like when, when Joe would say, okay, turn to blah, 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 book, we're going to study. 
I didn't know what that was. And he would just very gently just kind of flick the, <laughs> flick the pages over until I got, yeah. thanks, you know, and it's like, it, it was just enough embarrassment like people knew that i didn't know the lord and of course they were more than welcoming but at the same time as you as the unbeliever who's coming into the faith and you realize there's so much that you don't know about it you really can't put on a false mask at that point like as everybody kind of knows by that point you're not who you you know you're not who you say you are you know like you need more so yeah. um yeah so as i started to read um the Lord, of course, in his living and active book, uh, started speaking to me. And it was then that that same mutual friend uh, invited me to church. And um, so I would go with him and uh, I attended for uh, probably a few months. This is now my senior year. So it's probably been going on for about a year now. And um, there was a woman in the church who was also Catholic, who invited me over for Bible study. And so I went over there and one of the studies that we had together, she had talked about John 3, 3, and I had never obviously seen it before, but what I loved about her is that she didn't, she did not force it down my throat. She didn't, uh, come, she didn't, uh, bash the Catholic church. Um, she only said to me, go back into your Bible that you got when you were confirmed and see if this is the same verse Mm. here that it is in your Catholic Bible. And so I did. And sure enough, it was. And it was about, you know, being born from above. And just as Nicodemus didn't understand it, I didn't quite understand it, but I knew enough to know that there was a whole thing of of Christianity, of life that I was missing out on that no one had told me before. And so I, again, started having this interest. And, and as this woman, uh, you know, continued with her Bible study, she would ask me if I wanted to accept the Lord. And at first I said no, because I felt a little pressured. Like I, I was going to do it. Like I was, uh, by that point now we were at our senior trip and the senior trip was to Florida. So I was going to be going on a plane. And of course it was, you know, what do you, where do you go when you die? If that plane mm -hmm. goes down, what happens to you? And so I just very, you know, very gently, kindly said, yeah, I want to make that decision for myself. I don't want to make that decision because I feel like pressured to, or because, you know, out of this fear that something bad might happen. That's really mature though. Yeah, like I wanted it my I I guess I wanted it my terms, but I guess in a good way in that sense. Um, because you know, I didn't want someone to pressure me or to do something just to make her happy. I wanted to do it because that's what I wanted to do. Because I personally, as even as a kid, I've always been pretty uh, responsible um and pretty uh, obedient. I'm not the firstborn in my family, but I kind of act like it. So mm. I'm kind of like the the responsible older sibling. And uh so if I do something, I commit do it. And I can't yeah. do it whole And I didn't want to make that commitment in half simply because she was making me. Yeah, so I yeah. wanted to do it because it was what was right for me. But I see, I, I think that's really cool because that shows an ownership for you of your faith already, right? That um, I think a lot of people don't necessarily have, you know, a lot of people have that story. Like I just kind of went forward because of the thing, you know, or whatever. Right. Cause it seemed like everybody else was, uh, and you were like, no, I'm not going to be pressured in that. Maybe, maybe cause your Catholic background, you, you were used to that already. Yeah. Yeah. And you were resistant to it. Interesting. Okay. Well, so where'd that go from there? Um, yeah. So then, um, I was at church one Sunday and, um, the pastor there at the time, uh, talked about, um, communion. Everybody had communion there. And of course I had taken communion every week at Catholic church and didn't think anything of it. And he talked about the, the scripture, um, that talked about drinking judgment on yourself. And, uh, he spoke about if you take the body and blood without knowing the Lord or having sin in your heart, that you were drinking judgment on yourself. And that was this 
bam, like this wake up moment for me. And I just started crying. I started like tears streaming down my face. Everybody in the pew that was sitting next to me, probably about five people, all just turned their heads to look at me as I'm sitting there just crying because I'm thinking oh, to myself, yeah. oh my gosh, I could be going to hell and no one has said a word to me. And I thought the whole time I was being a good Catholic girl. And there was little that I had, uh, that I could explain or know except for what people had told me. And I thought to myself, what else do I need to know about my faith to make it more real and more serious uh, in my life? And so um, after that same communion, uh, the pastor finished his sermon and he said to anyone, if they felt led to go up to the altar and pray, uh, he did ask if anyone wanted to accept the Lord, um, but I just wanted to go up to pray. And there was something physical going on, like around my heart it was almost like heartburn. I don't know how to explain it, but it was like this kind of this. Uh, nudge, I guess, a Holy Spirit nudge now, I would probably would probably call it, uh, to go up and to pray. I just wanted to pray. And uh, so I went up there, and sure enough, this woman who had been in my, you know, helped me with Bible study all this time, came up alongside of me and asked me if I wanted to. Was it, she said, is it time now for you to accept the Lord? And I said, yes. And so we prayed together. And, uh, of course, she now just telling people in the church how I've accepted the Lord. And I found out that, like, half the youth group had been praying for me. <laughs> and uh, everyone was so excited. And she looked at me, and she put her arms around my shoulders. And she said, your life is going to change. She said, you don't know when, and you don't know how, but it's going to change forever. And I thought, I don't feel any different. Like, that's ludicrous. But, you know, that's silly. Like, that's never going to happen. And little did I know how much it was going to change for me pretty quickly after that point. Yeah. That's a great setup. Okay. So how to change. <laughs> right, yes. so, um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, uh, by now at this point, it's uh, senior prom. I've now graduated from high school. It's the summer before I'm going to college. I was going to a, a local state school. So I was staying in the area and uh, started dating my now husband at that point that summer before. Um, I did not tell my parents about it um, until several months after um, because I knew from the, the strict background that I'd come from, they probably wouldn't be too approving of it. And sure enough, they weren't. So I went up telling them about my conversion. I converted on Mother's Day that year, so 1996, and then did not proceed to tell them until after I was dating Joe in February of 97. And of course, my parents were very upset, did not approve of this at all. Um, it went through round after round of fighting. Um, wow. You know, horrible words were said, horrible things. Uh, done. This went on for about two years. Um, this was for them, for my parents, what I came to know was that for them, our religion was like an identity. So like, we're like, I'm part Irish. So for them, it's like, yep. my dad says this to this day, he says, you can't change. It's like being Irish. So for him, it's like an identity. So like it's Irish Catholic all the way. And because he's military, like he, he's Marine, so he fought in Nam. For him, it's like switching sides, if that makes any sense. So yeah. for him, it's like a disloyalty to the family. Is that, I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but. Yeah. So there's like a huge history there, even that we could, that is maybe not directly involved, but probably is like kind of hanging over there. I mean, the whole Irish Catholic versus English Protestant thing. Like that's yes. a, that's a huge war. So, yeah. so there's more going on there than just like, uh, oh, you can't Absolutely. become a Protestant, which is interesting. That's so friends, if you thought that was over and that was hundreds of years ago, it's not, it still it has consequences that we're dealing with today. Keep that in mind. Becoming a Protestant was definitely, uh, it was a, I want to say a fateful choice, but maybe it was, maybe that's too dramatic, but it was a, it was a significant choice for you and it was not without a cost. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I paid a very dear, dear cost for that because in about for about two years, we did nothing but fight. Um, there was a time when um, it kind of culminated in my sophomore year of uh, school where I was just feeling like, okay, I'm over 18 now, like I'm an adult and, you know, they're kind of still treating me like a kid and they can't treat me like this anymore. So I kind of asserted myself more, um, which I had not done much as a kid and just kind of said, you really can't talk to me like this anymore. Um, when you can talk to me like an adult, we can talk again. And so we did not speak for about, I think six weeks. So it probably went on from like September of that year to uh, November, it was right before Thanksgiving. And for our dorm, which I was living in, everybody kind of had to vacate for the week. Like nobody could stay there. So you had to find a place to go. Well, I had not spoken to my parents in six weeks. So I didn't even know if I could come for Thanksgiving. I didn't know if I had a place to go. I didn't know anything. So Joe, of course, says, well, you can come to eat with my family. So I said, okay. So he helped me move my stuff out, you know, uh, my belongings and, uh, you know, went with him uh, for that weekend and uh, ate with his home, ate at his home. And then the following Saturday, um, I worked in an eyeglass uh, an op uh, uh, optician office, and it was in a strip mall that was probably about three towns over from where we lived, so about a 15-minute drive. And Joe always picked me up after work. We always hung out after. And uh, about three o'clock, because uh, my parents knew my schedule, so they walked in um, about five of three when I was getting off and said, we'd like to talk to you outside. So they took me outside in front of the strip mall plaza. And proceeded to tell me that I had two weeks to get my stuff out of the house that I was no longer welcome. And so they proceeded to kind of berate me, couldn't believe that I didn't come for Thanksgiving, did not speak to them, did not call them, and you know, who am I to do that? And so uh, continued to do that. Um, and by this point now, my Joe has now come to pick me up. They've sent him home. Um, they said, we will take her home. And so they took me uh, in my dad's car to home. Uh, and then is where I found when he opened up the garage door that there were about 10 black trash bags filled with my stuff. Oh, wow. And they said they, uh, he packed up his truck, started filling the, the back with the trash bags. And they said, the rest of your stuff's upstairs. You can continue to pack. And so when I got up there, it's pretty much empty except for a few belongings. And so I started throwing things in trash bags and, uh, you know, kind of tying them up. My mom's in, coming in and out you know, yelling, how could you do this to this family? And, you know, you're upset and your grandmother is upset, you know, even the dog's upset and everyone's upset with you. And, you know, uh, we, we want you to reconvert to Catholicism. And I was like, no, this is a decision for me. And this is, I knew I was doing the right thing, but it was really, really hard. Yeah. And um, so I packed up what, what I'd had left and um, my dad threw it in the back of his car, his truck and drove me over to Joe's house, which was uh, again, about a 10 minute uh, drive everything Connecticut's very like close together so there's they're uh, pretty much interlocked yeah so, I don't remember did I, did I ask you where you what part of uh, the world you're in Connecticut so I grew oh, up in Connecticut. Connecticut okay yeah grew up in Connecticut small town and uh, yeah there's a cluster of towns called the valley there and so we were all part of the valley both Joe gotcha. and I were part of the valley just different towns so my dad drove me to Joe's house and dropped off all my stuff in the driveway and he said it's clear that you've made your choice and that this is your new family now and you can go live with them and so he got wow. in his truck and left out and left me there, standing there. And now, of course, I'm weeping to the point of almost choking on my own snot and yeah. choking out and, uh, you know, said what happened. And I, of course, I told him. And so he invited me in and told his parents and his parents said I could stay there until I found a place to, to live. I knew I couldn't live there because I knew it was wrong to live with somebody that I was dating but not married to. Um, so I knew I couldn't stay there. And um, And this is really where my story gets really 
amazing because the small church that we had now been a part of that I accepted the Lord in, there was a family who had heard of my story, but they called a cell church. It was a smaller church. And this family were praying for me in my situation and felt the Lord say that I could come live with them. And so I lived with them for about two years uh, from 1998 until uh, 2000 when I got married. And uh, in exchange for watching their children, I could live there rent free. So I was able to finish school. Um, my husband got me a car because uh, I had to live out of the dorm because I couldn't afford it anymore. So I stayed and commuted uh, and I, I went back and forth to school for two years. I worked uh, two jobs um, to kind of help myself get, you know, some, some money um, until uh, we got married. And it was, we got married in June of 2000. But, uh, but that really is where the church has always been kind of my family for me. And so, um, you know, that's, I'll probably always will be loyal to the church body as a whole, just because it's really has demonstrated to me just how much of a family it can be, especially in those really, really yeah. hard seasons of life. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of rejection doesn't come without like leaving a mark somewhere. Right. So like yeah. what, what did that do and how did that affect you? Um, yeah. Um, how did it or how does it? Cause I, I imagine yeah. it was still on some level. Um, will I ever be fully healed from that situation? Probably not. Um, but I had to work through a lot of forgiveness. Um, I had to make sure that my anger was not becoming bitterness or rage. Um, and without really the proper skills to do that, that's not easy. Uh, especially since I grew up in a home where we really didn't ask. My mother never asked for forgiveness for anything. I never heard her say sorry. Wow. Her, her, her mind, her mindset was I'm the parent. What I say goes, and I don't have to say sorry to you. So I never really learned how to forgive until way later. Um, until I understood the fullness of what Christ has done and that that's my, it's my paying it forward. The gospel is to forgive others as I have been forgiven. Um, and so I had to learn a lot through that. And it obviously through attending church, hearing teachings, um, you know, people who knew the word that were able to ground me in that. And I read, I read the word because that's what I wanted. And I read, I got a translation of the Bible that I loved that I could, couldn't believe I understood because the Catholic Bible is in like that old English. So it's the these and those, and I didn't understand a word of it, but I got a translation that really brought the scriptures to life. And so I started reading. And uh, got in a small group, and I am such a big advocate of the small group model in churches because, um, you know, that's where I got to learn people. They learned about me, um, and you know, there'd be a random card for fifty bucks. Hey, go out, you and Joe, go out and and have a good time. I know you're having a tough tough time, or uh, you know, hey, come babysit, and we'll you know pay pay you a week's worth of something or whatever. And uh, people were just overtly generous with wow. me. Um, during that season uh, from that that small small church and so um, people were overly wonderful uh, to to us including the day of my wedding a lot of those people we considered family and actually uh, one two three four I want to say five of them let's see we each had five on each side so I would say eight or nine out of the ten people that were there were from the church they stood with us at our wedding um, so that's what we considered people we wanted to stand with us on that day and um, my parents, uh, my father did walk me down the aisle uh, 
Um, my mother, grandmother, and sister who were invited uh, said they were going and then at the last minute did not. And so I was not informed of that until about five minutes before I got out of the limo. So the woman who had the flower for my mother gave it back to me and said, you know, your mom's not coming. And I said, no, I did not. And I mm. uh, was informed of that right before I left. So most of the tears that I'm sharing uh, when I'm walking down with my dad are not tears of joy, but tears wow. of just the situation and what we were going through. And, and she'd come, she'd come up an hour prior for pictures uh, to Joe's house. So I didn't know, she didn't tell me, Hey, I'm, by the way, I'm not coming. She didn't tell me anything until, well, nothing. So yeah. I didn't know right down. I walked down the aisle. So, um, so there's that, actually, I'm sorry, go ahead. No. Uh, on the unedited, on the unedited wedding video, there's actually a scene somebody had filmed with them praying that uh, Joe and the pastor and all of them, because of course they knew my situation hit, Joe being informed by somebody saying, did you know that her, your mother-in-law is not attending? And he says, no, I don't. And he said, well, let's pray. And so they're there standing together praying. So it's just a neat moment to see that you, I guess that's probably one of the most important lessons I've ever learned from the church is that you don't have to be blood to be family. Wow. Yeah, that's really powerful. Okay. So this is kind of this interesting crucible that you got thrust into right away. Most people don't have that with their, with their faith. Um, so in that, so what I'm hearing you say, definitely your, you know, your wedding was emotionally traumatic, maybe, or turmoil, emotional yeah. turmoil. Have you, do you, are you on TikTok? Have you heard that emotional day? Anyway, it's a, <laughs> um, but so you, you had a lot of that and then, but you found you're finding your family through the church. So that shapes you in a certain, in a certain way that, that probably shapes your discipleship and kind of your understanding of who, the Lord is significantly. Absolutely. And it also now as a pastor's wife, um, because after we got married, about four months after we got married, we pastored our first church. So ministry Uh and and our marriage have always been very closely linked. And it's been hard to separate the two throughout our lives because it just has always been a part of us. And so as we pastor each church we go, go to, we have always been big, huge advocates of the small group model. Um, and that it should be at the forefront of the ministries that the church provides, because that's really where you learn how to trust others. You learn the intimacy that comes with knowing a tight group of people. And, and honestly, that's how Jesus did his ministry. Like he had the three that he taught, he had the 12 that he taught, and then he had the masses. So he believed in the small group model. And I think every church should too, because the Sunday church model as it is, is not set up for intimacy and deep relationships. It's hi, how are you? Grab your coffee. Uh, you know, how was your kid's sports game? Okay. I'll see you later. And people yeah. walk out. And if you're not a part of a small group, you know, you're not really intimately connecting with a lot of those people from the body of Christ. And I think we really, really miss out when we don't do that. Yeah. I'm convinced people don't learn the way they used to either. It used to be that it was really important to have one person who knew the Bible to share scripture, right. Or to share that. Um, And I get that, but we're not in that age anymore. And even academia doesn't teach that way. 90% of the time, right. They teach in very more, much more tangible and um, in a, in a reactive, reacting Reactive ways, you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, interactive ways, that's what I'm, that's the word. So, um, which is fascinating and we've got to change that, right? So you you found that in, so that's one of my hobby horses, by the way, Michelle. That's what <laughs> I just want to see. I want to see that change because I think going into the 21st century and beyond, uh, we have to meet the discipleship need, not protect what we've, what we've had, right? So uh, anyway, 
I could go on about that for a while, but you, so the, the small group thing, um, is where kind of you've, you've found that. So that's, that's really fascinating. Are there any other like moments along your journey where you felt like the Lord was really close or kind of leading you? Yeah. Um, there's been a ton. Um, I mean, I certainly have had also those moments where he's, he's felt distant. Um, I think one of those moments was when we, uh, church planted for those five years. Um, those were really tough years, just kind of trying to gather a group of people in a region that is, I think it almost rivals the Pacific Northwest in terms of the amount of non-believers or people who have left the faith. Um, so that alone was already a battle. Um, but just to kind of get a core group of people that will stick with you. And it seems to be like a generational thing too, where, uh, the younger the generation is, the less value Sunday morning has become. I feel like that's just my experience. And that's just what I've seen over the 22 years I've been doing this, um, that people uh, can kind of take or leave Sunday and, you know, we'll either watch it online or, um, you know, we'll come once a month and it's not the same. I guess it's not the same as what I grew up with, which is what I just shared and just how important and pivotal that was to my spiritual growth. So um, having that extra battle too, just became a very, very dark, hard time in our ministry life um, because it was really hard to keep people uh, on a regular basis, people who tithe, people who kind of gave regularly to our mission. And so I won't go into the whole story, but just, you know, numerous places that we wanted to, you know, have church, uh, you know, we were kicked out several times. Um, so we never really had a place to call home until the very end. And then we started to see that, uh, you know, finances were dropping off and, you know, we need to live and we both had extra jobs. Uh, so we really never even saw each other. And we were kind of facing down the barrel of yet another pay cut to kind of, you know, um, counteract uh, the finances and expenses of where we were staying at the time. And so I was just like, you know, we just had enough, but I, I think during that time, one thing that God really showed me in that moment is just my wrong attitude about him and who he was to me. Like, I think I, I think for a long time, I think I grew up believing that God was a genie in a bottle or a vending machine mm-hmm. that if you just give your requests, you know, God will just give you when you push a button, God will give you what you want. And when you, when he doesn't give you what you want, then it, you have every right to be angry or mad and kick the sand at him. And, you know, little do we know that that's not at all how he operates. <laughs> and uh, we just get to be a part of his story and what he's doing. So, um, so I, I think that's, that is probably the one of the most important things I learned during that season was that every time something quote unquote bad would happen to me. And even during those moments, you know, even when I first was kicked out of my home, you know, I thought to myself, this is not what I signed up for. And everybody else's life looks so great and mine doesn't. And like, what happened here? Like, this is not, this is not in the memo. Like, why right. did no one ever tell me this could happen? And, um, you know, one of the, I guess one of the moments where God showed that he was closer to me than I thought was in, uh, I believe it's Matthew 19, 29. It talks about anyone who leaves father, mother, brother, for my sake will receive, um, you know, home yeah. for my sake will receive a hundred times this in this life and in the life to come. And that really was a moment where I realized that this is number one, it's not unusual to God, which in of course, it, even back in the nineties, that was unheard of. You didn't hear of anybody ever getting kicked out for their faith. Um, you know, it's persecution basically, but nobody was ever hearing of that at the time. And, uh, and also that, um, you know, that he knew what I was going through and that there would be a reward for that, whether I saw it in, in a paycheck or just the richness of the life that God was going to promise me, 
uh, here and in the life to come was just extremely comforting. And it made me feel like I wasn't alone. And then I wasn't doing that for nothing because I felt that way a lot that I felt like maybe I made the wrong choice. Uh, I doubted that a lot. And at, at the same time in my own soul, I was like, but I have to do this because if what I'm reading is real, then, then he better show up or else I'm believing a lie. So I really had to believe what the scripture said and cling to him with all I had, because if I was reading the Bible and everybody said it was true, then I'm like, well, it better be true and he better show up or else I'm going to find out really fast that what I'm believing is some sort of fairy tale. And I found obviously very quickly that he was more real than I could have ever have imagined uh, in my life. Yeah, I find that so fascinating. I, I often have said that I think we it's easy to assume that God is some sort of a cosmic ATM, right? We put in our faith card and we punch in our pin number of faith and, you know, church attendance and holyish living, right? And then uh, and out pop the blessings, but it doesn't really work that way. He's not, he's not manipulated like that. And I think just read the Old Testament and you'll find it. <laughs> Read the prophets; you'll find that's true. Yeah. Or look at the Pharisees, which I know I know you've written about as as well a little bit. How did you get into writing? What? So when did that come? When did that come up? Okay, so that was actually during the church planning years, and uh, we had all gone to our small group of ladies, and I did a women's retreat, and it was in two thousand nine, and just felt I was kind of worshiping my car, I was journaling, and just having quiet time, and um, just felt the Lord pressed upon my heart to write a book. And that was just so out of the blue because I had never written anything before that point. Um, I had had written a few poems in high school and then I just went through my yearbooks now and realized I, I wrote a bunch of the yearbook uh, um, stories for some of the stuff. So I guess I had been writing a little more than I thought I was, but um, yeah, so that was all I had really written. And actually when I went for my master's, which I was doing during that time, um, I did opted not to do the thesis because I thought I don't have enough words to say. There's no way I'll be able to write a whole thesis on my topic. And I've now written probably a hundred theses at this point. Wow. So um, yeah, so it's jokes on me because he's going to give them to you. But, uh, but yeah, so I really, I was totally out of the blue. I never even thought of it. I never really was even on my radar. And so I just kind of prayed and um, just asked God what he wanted. And I started searching the scripture. I thought that's a great place to start. And so I started reading the book of John and I was floored at how many times John said he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I was like, so shocked by that. And I thought, well, there's got to be a hundred books on this subject because it repeats it so many times. And there was nothing like Beth Moore had just come out with her book. Um, I want to say, I can't remember what the name of it, something about disciple uh, right before that. And that was really the only resource I could find that even broached the subject. And now I'm like intrigued, like yeah. why are we writing about this? And I just, as I studied and as I read through it and pondered it, I just came to understand that my belief in that, why he did that is because he had such an intimate relationship with, with Jesus that he believed he was his favorite. And I, that's what I wrote. That's, that was my very first book that I wrote was I self-published a, a Bible study called becoming the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, you know, I was a, obedient to it and I just made an arbitrary word count and um, you know, just kind of hit, hit goals and, and things. And I worked uh, in a before and after school program. So I worked in the morning, then I came home and wrote, and then I went back to work. So they were long days, but I did wind up self-publishing that in 2011 and the rest is history. Um, you know, got connected with a, uh, a vanity press at that time. And they were able to kind of show me the ropes and what a manuscript it looked like. And so I learned kind of the 101s on writing there. 
and then just kind of, uh, you know, came along. And, and every time I felt like I was calling me to write something else, I did my due diligence and I wrote about it. And now we're on book 14, I think. So, wow. so God does reward the faithful and, and too much is given, much is expected. And if he was going to give that to me, I was going to be obedient to it. And it didn't matter to me whether it hit the bestseller list. It just mattered that I was able to do what God had asked of me. I think that's a really important point. It's fascinating that you didn't want to write a thesis and then you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Um, but also just, just like you said there, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't always matter. I think for Christian creatives, you know, we see all these people who, you know, write books and they, it does hit the bestseller list or they're got this big promotion machine or whatever. And they can make us feel a little bit, insecure, right? About kind of what we're producing and, and the results. Um, but I often tell our, my podcasters like, Hey, look, if you, if you're getting 50 downloads every episode, if you had 50 people in your house, that would be a big deal, right? You would, that would be a night that you would prepare for and you know, and you would remember, right? You would, you would take pictures, you would do things like that. So don't underestimate just because it's on the internet, right? Like that's, that can be really valuable. I don't know. How do you, how do you handle that as an author? Um, I think one of the, I think it's one of the biggest pieces of information or advice that I give to writers, uh, especially beginners who, you know, kind of want to pick my brain and find out where they can get started is, is that it doesn't, you're a writer, whether you write for one person or 10 people or 50 people or 5,000, like that's not, it's not our job to, you know, right off the bat, believe that we're going to be published with Thomas Nelson and make the bestseller list because that's not for everybody and that's okay. But it doesn't mean that you're any less of a writer because of that. And the writing industry as a whole, <clears throat> the publishing industry is all about proving yourself. So it's really hard mm. to not get into that trap, not only of comparison, but also performance that I have to be better. I have to know this person. I have to constantly be shooting, you know, climbing this ladder of success. And the reality is, is that Jesus does what he wants to do with his books when he wants to do them. And um, it's his message and he has a right to do with it, whatever he wants. And if he, if I'm not going to write it, he'll find someone who will. So I just get to be lucky enough to be a part of what he's, he's asking me of the, the, the problem is what problem becomes is when people don't realize, and they want that Thomas Nelson contract right now. And I always tell people writing is a, is a, a, a marathon, not a sprint. And you start off with a blog post or you start off with, um, you know, an article and start there and start honing your craft. Some of the best writing should be from Twitter because you only wow. get a certain amount of characters and you have to really succinctly communicate a message that's going to go out to the masses um, and you, you can't go beyond those characters. So it's like kind of like a, it's almost like speed dating for writers, you know, it's like yeah. you can figure out how to write really well and succinctly in whatever the amount of characters is or less. So. Yeah. What's interesting about that is it you're honing a muscle, right? Like, and so yeah. it's been helpful to me to think of writing as a muscle. I've been writing for podcast magazine for a couple of years now. It's getting easier, although it still takes me way too long, but it gets easier because you work that right. And you learn what to do and you, you know how to kind of pull in a quote or whatever it is and it gets easier and easier. And um, which is really kind of, kind of fascinating but we don't like to think about that, right? We don't want, we're, we're kind of an instant society these days. We like to, to just blow up, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't see all the work that goes into not only the book, but also the building of the platform and yeah. over time, right? You know, like it just yeah, so takes many, time. 
as, as an agent, I get so many people who pitch me not only to writers conferences, but also just, you know, solicitations through email and through our agency. And uh, I would love to say yes to everyone because everyone has a God's message that they want to bring out to the world, but I can't take everyone. And, and to be honest, I don't take a ton of them because they don't have the platform. And for me, platform is still King. And it, mm-hmm. every time something in our world changes like a global pandemic or a shipping and printing crisis in the publishing world, <laughs> this all changes. And so we can't, we have to emphasize platform even more so now. And so it's more becoming harder and harder to get published traditionally. Is, having said that, yeah. having said that, it's no better time to be an author because there's a million books published on Amazon like every every year. So we can still get our message out there, but the marketing is really where it's at because you have to allow your book to rise to the top. So you have to be the cream of the crop and it's only laid on you. Like a lot of people think that the publisher just does it right. and they do, some of them do. Some of the larger ones do have publicists that kind of, Take your hand and help you with that. Absolutely. But the onus is always on us because that's our audience. And so we have to figure out how to get our book to our audience in a way that will will help them and benefit them in the best way. Yeah, man, I love that. That So it's really your responsibility to, to promote your thing. I want to go back to the platform thing because I think that is really interesting. And I think people... They find that daunting, right? The work of being, whether or not, whether you're an author or a podcaster uh, or some other new media, a YouTuber, my, my son is loving YouTube shorts. He's making these little YouTube shorts and he gets so excited when he gets 2000 views. I'm like, yes, that's great. Which is good for a 13 year old, right? Um, but whether but I keep telling him, keep going, right? Keep going because you have to, you have to just keep doing the work. There's a discipline to that, right? That, that you have to, you have to commit to it and decide you're going to do it regardless of the results. And it's, yes, it's, it's a discipline um, for sure. And it's also, it also requires a teachable spirit. Like I never forgot the first mm. writer's conference that I ever attended as an author. It was, you know, 2011 and I was pitching the disciple whom Jesus loved and uh, deer in the headlights had no idea what I was doing. I went to like one of the biggest ones she speaks. So yeah, way to go there. And, uh, you know, went there, you get to have two or three appointments, 15 minute appointments with editors and agents. So of course I did that. Um, and I, I never forgot my very first one. Uh, normally they do those appointments one-on-one and you get 15 minutes to kind of pitch your work and then they kind of look at it and then they give you feedback. This one, my very first one, had no idea to expect, was with a woman from Terry, from David C. Cook. Her name was Terry Beheimer Cook. And um, she did a group appointment. So she did them in half-hour intervals, and she allowed five or six people at one time to come in. And we all sat at this round table, and she spent probably the first 10 or 15 minutes telling us all about David C. Cook and what they were about, and then gave us one minute to pitch our books. And then she gave us all this kind of immediate feedback. So she went, I was probably third or fourth in, and, uh, you know, she was saying, well, you know, this first person goes, well, you probably need to do X, Y, Z. Next one said, same thing. Third one, I said, I gave her the thing. I gave her the, the title and the pitch. And she said, love it. I would love to see more. And then she went on to the next one. And I was like, <gasps> like, what did you just say? <laughs> and she, and she wasn't, I mean, she was a tough, tough, late, tough cookie. Like, you, you know, she didn't take everyone's. And at the very end, I went over to her and I said, you know, thank you so much for seeing potential in my work. And I would love to send you something. She gave me a card and she said, but you better be ready. She said, um, wow. and one of the things that she had told me, told us in that group appointment was that she used to do, uh, she used to be a screen uh, writer, screenplay writer, and she used to review them for people. And she said, if you didn't have her by page one, you didn't have her. And she said, it used to go in the circular file. 
Um, and so she, she knew what good hooks were. She knew what good stories were. And if you could hook her in, in the first couple of pages, you probably had potential to, to kind of see it on. And so I never forgot that. And I, I still, so she, I gave her the proposal, like I wanted. And that woman called me on the phone and she spent over a half hour with me going through page by page, my proposal said, well, you said this here, don't say that, say this here, went through the pages of the manuscript, said, well, you started a little early, why don't you start here, or you forgot to add this particular thing. She gave me so much wonderful feedback, I never forgot that. And when I had my first Bible study, well, Christian Living book, traditionally published, that was uh, An Invitation to the Table, 2016, uh, got the deal with Leafwood. Very first copy I ever got was a free copy. I went, mailed it, I asked her for her email, uh, sorry, mailing address, and I mailed it to her. And all I put was a little sticky note that said, I don't know if you remember me, but I want to say thank you. That's because awesome. I remember the advice you gave me all those years ago. And one of the things that she told me was, what I love about you is you have a teachable spirit and that will bode very well for you in this writing. She said, keep it up. And I cut out that email and I posted it on my bulletin board. And on the days when things got hard and I had plenty of friends, encouraging notes, all those kind of things, but that I stuck up there. And I also stuck up some who were friends that didn't like the book. And I posted that too. And I would look at it. And I would either try harder or I would be remembering in those hard days that she saw something in me and I'm not going to let her down. And so I worked, there was another five years before I got it, but I got it. And, uh, and the first person I, I thanked was, was her. And the second that I thanked was actually the family who took me in oh. because without them, I wouldn't have a book. I wouldn't have a story about, cause the book was about hospitality and how I learned what hospitality really was in a really tough season of my life. So, yeah. so I really write books that I have not, I have never written a book that I haven't fully experienced. So that's kind of where this new book kind of comes in is, is my, you know, some experiences that I've had over this past couple of years. Yeah. So I'd be remiss if we didn't at least uh, talk a little bit about I Surrender All, sort of. So that's a great title. I'm a sucker for a great title. So I like that. What? So where did that come from? And, and uh, what are, what are people going to get from it? Yeah. So um, in end of 2019, I had, I'd had this idea, uh, something again, felt God impressing upon me. I did my proposal, my two chapters started pitching it around to writers conferences and got nowhere. So I did what I normally do, which is kind of sticking on my desktop and thought I must've heard wrong, or, you know, when God tells me it's time, I will self-publish it and that's okay. And so, uh, the end of 2019 came and I have always struggled with anxiety. Um, even as a kid, big shocker to the listeners who just heard my stories, why? And um, I was just, I've always kind of kept it at bay. I've been able to use coping mechanisms and strategies to help keep it, um, you know, in control until the end of 2019, had a lot of tensions going on, uh, you know, work-related personal tensions that all just kind of culminated in, um, in this moment where I was having what I, what were little waves of panic, of anxiety or fear that kind of escalated into these waves of panic that I couldn't control. And I often liken that to like that staples, that was easy button. Like somebody just kept hitting this button over and over and over again. And I could never get it to stop to the point where I was not functioning normally and um, was panicked all the time from the minute I got up to the minute I got laid down. Um, and it got to the point where I had to see professionals. I had to see psychiatrists and receive medication and counselors and help me get through that tough season, but when, and finally received the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so I was glad to have a label on it. Um, and, uh, uh, but it was really tough. Like that was just to get another hard, hard season of, 
um, the abundant life that Christ promises is um, having to learn how to surrender, how to learn how yeah. to let go. And the reason why I uh, titled it that is because the very first church we ever pastored, uh, we were singing the hymn, we were practicing for worship team, we were singing the hymn, I Surrender All. And the gentleman who was playing the guitar put his guitar down and he said, well, that's not really true, is it? And we said, what do you mean? He said, well, we surrender all. I'm sorry, we surrender some, but mm. we really surrender all. And I remember that hitting me thinking, well, he's right. Because we kind of, you know, we put our hands up and surrender every Sunday. And yes, Lord, we love you. And I don't doubt that people do, but then they go home and they take everything up that they're supposed to be giving over to God. And so the book is really asking the question, what areas of your life are you are you keeping away from God, not laying down that God really wants you to give him fully so he can do the miraculous in our life. And the subtitle is laying down your plans so God can do the impossible. Yeah. And it really is about all the things that we have, these favorable outcomes that we really want for our lives that we really, in the end, really don't have any control over. And when you're in that panic state, like I was, there is no functioning normally. So every area of my life was deeply impacted by this. And um, so that was really, it was really tough. So I had to really let go of any, anything that I was holding back from the Lord um, to really see him work. And I did, I saw him in just miraculous ways uh, so many times uh, throughout that. And um, yeah, so that's why it's the title, because I think all of us have areas of our lives where we really don't want God to have, because we're afraid he's going to mess it up. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so that's really where the book comes from. And it really comes from my experience of of anxiety, but then also how do you really learn how to give your life over to God for Yeah. Was there a moment that you had to surrender even the anxiety to the Lord? Yeah. I mean, yeah, before, um, yeah. When I was seeing, um, psychiatrists and things, we were trying a myriad of, of medications. So not everyone worked at the time and they were yeah. trying to get the diagnosis right. And, um, they don't always get that right the first time. And so I was trying medication that didn't always work. And some gave me side effects that were worse than what I was dealing with. And so it was a trial just to get the right medication at the right dosage, uh, for the right period of time, uh, before I could really function, uh, in a way that was, uh, was good for me, but it was my new, is my new normal. And it's so funny that it came, it actually came uh, by the time I finally got the diagnosis and was kind of coping with that, that's when COVID started. Ah. And so the week after um, I really started getting on medication, it's starting to kick in. Um, and some of those, you know, uh, protocols have been put in place, um, you know, our church shut down. And so I didn't get a chance to really see anybody. And I had taken leave of absence before that. So I had seen people for like a week and then everything shut down wow. and I didn't see them for like four months. So people were asking, are you okay? You know, like, cause we haven't seen you for a long time. Um, so again, the local church was wonderful to me as usual, the cards, the flowers, the gifts, the stories of people who had either, um, personally struggled with this or had family members who had, um, that really spoke to me. And I would also like to say during my recuperation time, when COVID first got started, I read Terry Wordle's Same Kind of Crazy. Yeah. And that to me made me feel normal. Great book. He was he was on the show. I had, and that I was, he was. It was and that's fantastic. Why I was like, I've got to get on here because yes. I just love Terry Wordle and I love his story, his honesty. Oh man. And that book, if you if anybody out there listening or you, Eric, can get him a message to say thank you for that. Because that really single-handedly helped me in my my recuperation process uh, of anxiety. Um, it helped me feel 
more normal and it helped me feel like I wasn't alone. And I, and I don't even know him. Amen. Yeah. He does such a great job of just being vulnerable about all of that. And, you know, feeling like you have to have it all together. I love that. I asked a question about that moment because I had one too, where I had to finally, my prayer was when I was struggling with anxiety, look, God, I don't think you want me to deal with it. Like this isn't what you're, what you have for me, but if it is, I'll go through it. Right. And that was a moment of surrender. Um, and funny enough, uh, the anxiety settled down after that, right? Like there was, there was interest. I was like, oh, okay. So there, that was a kind of full, um, full experience for me. So I can definitely relate to this whole idea of surrender. Uh, Michelle, I appreciate you sharing your story with us. I know people can get, um, I surrender all sort of at uh, Amazon. There's also a link of course in the show notes at halfway there podcast.com. And your website is michellelazurek.com, right? So people can find you there. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Yeah. Um, God is real. Um, there is hope. And although the, the road can be hard and downright impossible or feels like it at the time that, that Jesus is walking us alongside of us with every step and that with his Holy Spirit, he guides and orders every step that we have. And we can, that we really can triumph over anything in our lives, even when it seems impossible with his help. Amen. I love it. Thanks for being here, Michelle. Thank you.